0: This episode of Fermented Adventure, the podcast features Steve Bayshore of George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery. Please take a moment to subscribe to be notified when the most recent episode has been uploaded. Feel free to reach out to George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery and let them know what you thought about the podcast. Cheers! We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guests. We're here at George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery. He's Steve Bachure. I'm Rich Shane, Don Ranieri's here, and this is Fermented Adventure the Podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. So, so, so yeah. you are, you are uh, our, our 50th episode, your anniversary uh, edition. I don't know how to better describe it. And we've been excited. We, 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 this has been like something we've, we've talked the whole way down um, and, and, and are fascinated to get to know you, introduce you to the podcast world, the distillery world. How did
1: this, how did George Washington's Mountain Vernon Distillery, how did this come about for you? Well, for me, I was working in the museum field. Have been for close to thirty years, and uh, I am a miller by trade. Eighteenth century, nineteenth century. How water does powered.
0: somebody become a miller by trade, especially yeah. as an ancient industry or an ancient crafter?
1: Well, like any I, I would trade, say like ancient, what, is it that is wrong? ancient. It's ancient yeah, okay. mills. The first water-powered mill reference is 150 BC. So, you know, using. Kinetic energy to turn machines goes way back. But into, but
0: how does somebody find their? How did you like? Is it, as did somebody introduce that to you as a kid? How did you find your way into becoming a miller?
1: Uh, well, after getting a degree in history, I you look for what path where you can work. Uh, whether it be, I thought teaching would be one route, but then there's this public history route with all the different historic sites throughout the country, and I got a job at a county park site doing special events and programming. And my office was in an 1820s house that was the miller's house for a water mill that that county system owned. So the mill was right down the hill. And I would go down there and got fascinated by the mill and the machinery and talking to the guy that ran the mill. And about a year into my job there doing special events, they had a position on the mill staff opened up to give tours. And I applied and got that job. And the guy that ran the mill liked me, and he said, uh, "Hey, do you want to learn how to run this mill?" I said, "Yeah." So, three years of training under him, and then I was able to run it on my own. And then that. So led. you
0: were like a miller, a miller apprentice. How would they? How would they? Is that how it's defined as a miller apprentice?
1: Yeah, and there are the trades that are practiced in a lot of living history museums. That's usually how you learn is get an apprentice under some skilled craftsman, and if they you know are willing to take you on, and you, you learn the trade. So I learned the trade there, and then I went to another museum. Uh, Stratford Hall which is the Lee family home it's an 18th century house in Tidewater Virginia and I ran the mill there for 10 years.
0: Would you ever have thought as a a child as a youngster it sounds like you've always been fascinated with history but did you ever find yourself and think yourself at that point or did you ever kind of reflect that you never thought you'd be here or this isn't a path you ever thought you would have
1: taken? I think a lot of times, you know, because you you always see things better in the rearview mirror. You know, you look back and think, well, how did that happen? What series of events or people you meet that influence you that send you on a course, whether it's a teacher or a mentor or just somebody influential in a certain trade. And so I had no idea. You know, it's been 27, 28 years now running water mills at Stratford is That mill I was at there, that's really where I I think I became a miller, you know, because it wasn't just turn the mill on, give tours. It was food-grade product, you know, sourcing the right grains and actually making things for sale. And that's a odd, different than just turning the mill on so people can see it run. So from that standpoint, you really got a chance to work with
0: different grains and and just be exposed to the whole, uh, you know, gambit of of everything that could be milled and then taking that to the next level as you said now this could become commercial or this can become a money generating uh, opportunity right
1: yeah and it also as a historian it helped me look back on history in a different way you know the history of engineering history of machines how did societies create products that they needed whether it be for bread or for spirits or whatever it may be and on that property in Tidewater Virginia the mill is on the lower end of the property it's got a nine acre mill pond at Stratford and at the end of the days, I was the only person on 1,000 acres because the, the house is up further up on the hill. So I was really immersed, you know, almost back in time working there for 10 years and helped restore that mill with the, the millwright that uh, they hired to, you know, every so often you have to redo machinery. Okay. It's all wooden machinery. And so millwrights build mills, millers run mills. So I was his labor for 27 months and helped rebuild that mill. And then in 2006, I'd been there 10 years, and I had other opportunities there to advance a little bit, but I knew folks at Mount Vernon, uh, and over the years I would come up here, because when the mill was restored in the mid-1990s, late-1990s, I knew the Englishman that was the consultant, the English millwright. So I was always kind of watching the site, which, I, you know, looking backwards, that's interesting to me. And this, where we're sitting, was an archaeological dig. So I'd come by, talk to the archaeologist, no, I had no idea that one day I'd be running the place. In 2007, they advertised for a position to manage what I thought was going to be the mill and the distillery. turns out it was also the farm, and then later we added the blacksmith shop. So my Department of Historic Trades oversees the living history element. We're usually in period costume. So well, the is, stories. Is,
0: I'm thinking, and you're talking about that. Is this like, you know, no slight to any other major league baseball team, but is this like the Yankee Stadium of history? When when what? you talk about the things that you get to be a part of and do and be you know just be associated
1: with, yeah, Mount Vernon. Uh, you know, coming from smaller museums, you know, it really opened my eyes. Uh, and uh, it's not a, it's not an arrogance thing. It's just the scope of the story. of No, Washington you you, you, re- you, you is, achieve different uh,
0: levels in your experience, in your knowledge, in what you do. Mm-hmm. And this is you know you kind of reach that 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 pinnacle aspect of it, right?
1: Yeah, coming here been a lot, you know, in a lot of variety of ways. One was just uh, the opportunity to work at Mount Vernon, which is the oldest history uh, organization in America. Really, it was founded in 1858 when a group of ladies bought 200 acres in the mansion to save Washington's home, which was falling down. So the heritage of preservation here, the heritage of education here, goes really deep. And and then loving history so much that the voluminous records we have allow us to tell a lot of incredible stories for all our guests that come here from a variety of angles. Uh, and so with what we do in trades, it's the farming, the lives of the people that lived and worked here, both enslaved and free and indentured. It's the perspective of Washington, the farmer, the agriculturalist. And then it also, as we jokingly say, we get to play with these nice big toys, which is, I just showed you the water-powered. Oh, number. that's fascinating. And, you know, this distillery with these five copper pots in here. So, So this reflects an era of distilling and milling history that, you know, I think some people are familiar with, but people that come are always really uh, blown away by these two buildings.
0: Now, you took over the mill. You've really been integral in bringing that along. And then next thing comes is the distillery, which wasn't here until the early part of the 2000s, correct?
1: Yeah. When I came here, the building was just being completed, the restoration. So that stairwell back behind us didn't exist yet. The carpenters were, were still working in here. And we did a little History Channel film about the distillery in January 2007. In March, late March 2007, it opened to the public. And so I was in here when fire was first put under these stills. Now, were
0: you part of the team that designed the, or, or took the plans? For, talk about the design of the distillery and, and where all that comes from. Um, I understand in part... Some of the records were there, but some weren't, or some of the ideas were there, but you still had to do some research. So talk about how this was all
1: designed. Yeah, that was before I was here, but I, I knew the, the team, you know, having come up here a lot, and they were aware of me at Stratford and the mill. Uh, Dennis Pogue was the head of preservation, and he had also had developed the archaeological program here at Mount Vernon. He's, so he was the, really the, the, the man behind the project. Um, and then Esther White, which was head of archaeology, she was and her team with Dennis did the excavation here. So once the mill was taken over, because that had been a state park and we were doing all the machinery, redoing that, six seasons of archaeology was done here. So it uncovered every feature of this building. What
0: was left? I mean, when we look at this building, what, was, what did they dig up to
1: what did they rebuild now to what you see today? Well, it was all gone. It was all gone. It, it had burned down. It was built in the late 1790s, and we'll talk about that story, how that came to pass. But um, it burned in 1814. And then over the 19th century, people come and take stone away to build other buildings. So so by the Civil War, this this was a field. All, all remnant of the distillery was gone. 1932, when the state rebuilt the mill, they did archaeology here. I think, well, it was probably 29, 1929, 30. And they, we had that archaeological report. And so that was the basis for the dig we did. And what they found was um, the cobblestone floor was still there, the fermentation floor. In fact, some of those cobbles are original to the building. So we row mash today on parts of the original floor they were rowing mash on 1798, 99. Um, They found floor drain, there's one right over here by you. So we put the floor drain back, that was found. They found parts of the foundation walls, they found drains, underground drains that took water away from the uh, worm tubs take the water away from the building. They found burnt soils and brick remains for the fireboxes where the five stills were located, found the base of the boiler. Um, And then we have the ledgers. We actually own the original ledgers. So we know who every customer was that bought whiskey here. We know the quantities of grain coming in. We know the, the amount of output of these stills. We know the people who lived and worked in here. So we had great paper trail, fantastic archaeological dig. And Esther White told me one time when... I, once I came to work here, the archaeologist, he said, when we started this, we thought, well, we'll go talk to other people that have excavated distilleries in America and learn what they learned. What they found out was not many had been excavated. I was going to say, there, there, how would you know? There's really not a lot to draw from for Well, there's bourbon Pompeii, which we all know about, that they found in, in Kentucky. Right. And, but in New England, there was a rum distillery that was excavated, I forget the year, maybe in the 80s or 90s but there wasn't a lot to go on. So this has become a case study for archaeologists about some parts of industrial history. So when you have all that paper trail plus the archaeology, Mount Vernon realizes there's an opportunity to rebuild this. So the other key player for us that helped make this happen was the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. And at that time, uh, Peter Cressy, retired admiral, was head of Discus. And our head administrator, Jim Reese, who was the head of Mount Vernon, then contacted them with Dennis Hogue as well. And Peter was able to raise the money to rebuild the distillery. So we have done a lot of collaborative work with Discus over the years, with press tours. We're part of the uh, whiskey trail, American whiskey trail. Oftentimes they'll bring overseas press here first. We'll do a tour and tasting. Well, I think
0: what this does is it, it really, you, know, you start, this is talking about American whiskey. This is the heritage of where it all starts from.
1: Yeah. And uh,
0: it's, it's also, so it's, if you're coming from overseas, this is a good place to get your feet wet on it, right?
1: Yeah, and then they'll see the the history of how it was done. Then they would take them to Kentucky and tour a lot of the great. Yeah, see, they should be without... going to
0: Pennsylvania too.
1: Yeah, <laughs> big whiskey <laughs> state for PA
0: for sure. Now, so the footprint of what we see here, Steve, is this? Would this be exactly of what you would have found period to the day? Have there been some modifications?
1: It's you don't know. It's ninety five percent, ninety five percent there. Yeah, I mean we probably missed a little thing here or there. It's hard to know because there was no plans, there's no drawings, there was nothing. It's all based on the archaeology, and um, the other partner uh, with the build was uh, Vendome. So Mike Sherman and his team there at Vendome made these copper pots for us. So um, that must have been. What was their
0: take on that? I mean, they're being a, they're a part of history, and uh, you know, recreating history,
1: preserving history. Oh, they were, it brought so many great people together. I mean, and this it was before my time, you know, right when I came, I got to meet all these guys. But they did early work here, too, where they had a still set up outside that was patterned after an early still that the Smithsonian owns. That was made by Vendome. And they tested that, I understand now, I've learned, at Jim Beam's plant in the parking lot <laughs> to make sure it would work. Was that a license still, I wonder? <laughs> we'll skip that. Uh, but they wanted to make sure it worked, but they brought it out here when we had our license, and they, they did small batch distillations to help raise money for the project and for Mount Vernon. And, again, I missed all that. I wish I'd seen photos and talked to all the guys that were there. You know, Dave Pickrell was there. He was our, one of our key consultants. Jimmy Russell. Um, Joe Dangler, who, who was at A. Smith Bowman for almost 40 years. Uh, he was there. A number of other people. And so those particular distillations were just part of the, like, bring back the awareness of Washington and whiskey. Also, I think it helped birth the resurgence of rye because Washington made rye whiskey. And as you know, in the last 15 years or so, rye has just, you know, taken off again. And, and that's really a heritage of Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, and other parts of the colonies was rye whiskey. So I do think that played a role. And we have a role in that story of rye coming back. What, what,
0: so, so you were here and you came aboard as, as all this was being conceived – what was your first experience like in this distillery? First
1: experience was a History Channel film shoot, January 2007. Get your get your period costume ready, and oh, we're going to do a film shoot. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Well, I'm always in period clothes. I call them my, those are my normal clothes. <laughs> okay. These are not my normal clothes okay. today, because I've been doing living history for a long time. So, yeah, they came in to do a shoot, which was about the story of the distillery and how it came to be. And that was your first day or first experience? First with the week. Disti- okay. Yeah. And that was another cool thing, too, because I've, I've been part of film shoots and small shows and stuff. But, you know, when you're at Mount Vernon, it was wonderful. to Hey, wow, History Channel crew's here. And they had quite a bunch of equipment, and they set up in here. And, and we told the story of Washington's distillery and, and James Anderson, the Scottish farm manager, and the enslaved men who worked in here. So that was my first month here. And then it was a downhill run because uh, I had to learn a lot because I was now gone from being a miller on my own in mill. A one man show to having a staff of 15 or 20 and uh, and having to manage people and the sites and the farm, et cetera. So it was a, a steep learning curve that first year. And in fact, the first few years, because we get in a normal year, Mount Vernon will get 1.1 million visitors. And I was coming from an, a beautiful plantation estate at Stratford that got 40,000 people a year. Okay, this, yeah. So 40,000, 50,000 is like a month for us sometimes. So, it, it, and you learn pretty early on, like when you're on the farm interpreting and giving tours, you can't talk to everybody or you will not have a voice by the end of the day. And uh, this opened with great fanfare and press in March, 2007. So there was a lot of focus on this story. And, you know, I think that 2007 was a bit of a blur for me looking back. Uh, And then, uh, and even today, you know, we're in the COVID year, which is just horrible in many ways. We haven't seen that visitation. So, uh, but uh, even 10, 12 years in, I still get burnt out. We call it the 100 days, that spring, when all the buses come and the school kids come and everything else, and we do a lot of educational programming. And so you just have to pace yourself. But if they walk away learning something about farming, about Washington, about who lived and worked here and why these things were important and what happened, then we've done our job. All right. There's 100. You've given me 100 trails to go down because a lot of questions are popping
0: in my head, but and um, even with those things there, especially as a historian, I, I want to go back right now to your experience with distillation and your understanding knowledge of it prior to coming here. Very little. So you, milling, you knew the grain, you knew what to do. Um, you knew why you needed to mill that grain or the, I guess, the, the, the coarseness, the fineness of it, right? Right. But after that, once you sent it away, whatever happened to it,
1: happened to it. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the places I first worked, that first mill, we would do a fall festival and there was an old still that we had that we set up with a couple of volunteers and ran water through it, you know, so it was like showing farm distillation. And, you know, I enjoyed whiskey, um, but I just didn't have a deep knowledge of process or a deep knowledge of, uh, you know, I knew the history of it, but I didn't know the... So from a historian standpoint,
0: you know, you knew whiskey. Oh, yeah. But at what age or what point in your life did you become more of where where it became passionate for you or interesting to as 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 a as, where you consumed it
1: mm-hmm. where did you find yourself there i uh, just uh, like probably any college kid you know you start okay. off drinking certain things <laughs> what party, was your, but then later what was that first
0: experience <laughs> well you know
1: well <laughs> You know the Jim Beam, the Jack Daniels days, things okay. like that, and you know it's Nick, so funny how many distillers we talked to that Jack Daniels mm-hmm. was impactful to their lives. Yeah, and for me it was a little more Beam than Jack. But, okay, you know, and then when you're even younger, you know, when you're not supposed to be drinking, I remember a lot of you know Bacardi and a lot of rum days. But um, I think when it really hit me probably ties into the fact that first few months when we we're getting ready to open this, and I'm told by Dennis Pogue that these distillers were coming to help with the grand opening and we actually fermented and ran the first distillate out of this building, in March, 2007. So you were there for that. Yeah.
0: What was it like firing up? And so, so you, did you take it from grain? D- were you working the fermenters at the time? Were you involved in that?
1: Yeah. And I was just basically labor, you know, cause we had, you look around the room, Oh, there's Jimmy Russell. There's Dave Pickrell. There's Joe Dangler. So I was just like, yeah, hey you, know, hey, I was hey, the gopher. hey, you lift that. <laughs> yeah, I was the gopher, and, we, and initially, what was funny uh, is that well, they were all really kind. Really, you know, I, they, I, they they love the history of right. it. Right, the community, so. and I can imagine their
0: part in in the resurgence of this and the resurrection. Of this is, is 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 important to them.
1: Oh, it was, and you could feel that. Yeah, because the camaraderie, and then you hear the stories about the early distillations, the funny stories that happened outside on that early still that they had. And so, you you know, and I think for me, when I travel to Europe and and hang out with my mill friends, it's the same sort of camaraderie. I I saw the connectivity of that. It's like, this is like my mill nerd guys and girls, because plenty of women running mills in Europe too. And that we go on these, you know, tours every three or four years to a different country and everybody's of the same mindset. You know, we're all there to see these things and these distillers are the same way. So they stepped in here. They loved it and they wanted to be a part of it and, and remain a part of it, several of them. But that's where I think I realized the depth of the possibilities here because we, we never planned to push this real hard. This was meant to be an educational facility, which is what we still are. And our CEO at the time, Jim Reese, who was passed away a few years ago, but Jim ran Mount Vernon for about 25 years. And before I came here, I heard the story that Jim – Didn't want us to make alcohol down here because he thought it's about education, not about making alcohol. So apparently in some meeting, he slammed his fist down on a table and said, we will never make whiskey in that building. Now, this is before I worked here. Right. I'm here in the second hand. And so then we made that first run for the opening, and I thought that would be it. We'd do demonstrations, run water through the still to show how it works. And in 2009, for whatever reason, I think Dennis probably convinced Jim that we should try to do a small run. So that's when Dave Pickrell helped us, you know, more in depth. The first time, you know, we set twelve fermenters, made a very small number of proof gallons, and 2010, you know, after getting our license, all all the stuff we had to do with the label, it sold out in three hours. And so Jim Reese, who had told me we'll never make, you know, he calls me in his office and says, "You need to figure out how to make more whiskey." And so that's how kind of the birth of our program happened. I I look at life
0: today, and it's important because he. I look at the word or the concept of evolving, right? He evolved. Mm -hmm. And where does that bring, you know, life for you? Because if he had not ever done that, it might be a different story for you. Maybe still here, probably still here. But all that we see here today, a lot of people would have missed out on so much experience, on so much history, on, on, on so much connection by him saying, you know what? I think there's an opportunity here. I think I need to change my mind and evolve from there Yeah, and look, look, look at what it's done. I mean, you, you talk about these, these names of, of people in, in, in the distillation industry that, that have come and, and, and given their, their life
1: experience mm-hmm. to create what you have here today. Yeah. It opened this huge door that I didn't anticipate. And, um, but I'm very thankful for it because, you know, I love and will always love milling. You know, I can't imagine not being involved in, in milling grains but for me, the last six, seven years in particular, this building has taken up more and more of my time. Thankfully, you know, I enjoy what we get to do in here. You know, I like the physical nature of 18th century distilling too. I row a lot of mash, and uh, and it's, to me, therapeutic. Like, I, I'm happiest if I'm running that mill or if we're in here doing something product-wise. And so that all started from that little inkling of that first barrel we filled here in 2007 in the building, and then 2009... And the process has gotten better and grown over time. We make more. We've done a variety of different things, not just rye. And we're sitting at an interesting crossroads now because we have a lot of whiskey laid down the last few years. I mean a lot for us. It's not like we're not big. But the best whiskeys we've made have yet to be bottled. And that makes me feel good about the project. All right. So let's talk about a couple
0: of things. I want to come back to the whiskeys you've laid down. I want to come back to just th- those, those crossroads that we talk about. But right now where we're sitting, we've got the fermenters behind us. Mm-hmm. Now talk about the fermentation process because we're talking, again, we're, we're going back to George Washington days. And, and it was done a lot differently than the stainless steel fermenters and all that stuff that we're doing today. How does that get done?
1: Well, and... You have to always cook and ferment, right? You always have to do those steps and then run your your distillation. But the way they did it over the centuries was they'd have to get hot water moved over to a large vessel, a wooden vessel. So we ferment in 120 gallon hogsheads or mash tons. Uh, And the boiler is also behind you. It's just an open pan, really. That would have been a wood fired boiler in the 18th century, 210 gallon. and, And they would fire that up every morning and then hand bucket and ladle 110 to 115 gallons into a fermenter as you add your over grains. the grain and everything else, right? Yeah. So when we do this, we do set fermentation as they did in the 1790s. So we have a bucket brigade going on. Me or one of my other folks are rowing mash, and then somebody's pouring grain. So the corn and rye go in first, and you cook that for a period of time, and then uh, at the appropriate temperature, we'll add that malted barley, and that will then, as you know, convert the sugars starts to sugar and then we we do add our yeast at the end of the day
0: now what would the process have been because i was thinking about this i mean were there what yeast or you know going back to george washington's mash bill what yeast was he using or how did that enter
1: into the 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 fermentation process well the, the ledger notes several purchases over the two years he was still alive running this um for a brewery in alexandria virginia where he would buy yeast so initially i thought. I saw the one entry, and I thought, "Well, okay, then he just cultivated that." But then I was reading the ledger. I always like to go back through stuff, and I found another purchase a few months later. So he, when needed, they would go into Alexandria from that brewery and, and buy that yeast. Now, you have choices for yeast right now,
0: right? Is there how is that determined as far as what kind of yeast was used, and has that changed throughout any of the processes you've? Yeah, we've gotten changed today? a
1: couple times. Uh, you know, Dave Pickrell. Um, when we were with Dave, he had certain contacts in Kentucky that we got yeast from. And in 2016, Dave was kind of starting to phase out helping us because he was so busy. Uh, And Lisa Wicker, who's our consultant now, who runs Widow Jane in Brooklyn. I think you've met Lisa before up at Liditz. So she, you know, every distiller I've learned has their way. And so uh, she taught us some other things that uh, really have helped output and yield. And one of those was a change in yeast that we're using. So, and again, it's not an 18th century yeast. We haven't, you know, done experiments. I'd That's like what to I'm saying. That. And, and, and um, looking at this building
0: and what you have, what about the wild yeast that are present? And, and does that come into the process at all?
1: Well, in the early days, it wasn't from something in the 18th century, but when we were working with Dave, there would be times you'd look over a fermenter and it's already going. And it wasn't from yeast from the 18th century. It's because we had been doing more fermentations and production runs. So it's just in the building. I've thought about, you know, this field out here in front of the building is relatively untouched on this other side of the creek. So it's something I'd like to see if there's anything around here that might have been related to something done here in the early days. But we use a firm solutions yeast, a whiskey yeast from firm solutions. And part of that also is we needed something, as Lisa told me, with our building, the way we do it. You need something hardy that was going to do its job in these, you know, weird conditions that we work in. You, You know, no climate control in here, you know, all sorts of factors and variables that we cannot control in this building. So we've gone with you know good ingredients to make quality product. The grains we source in Virginia, except for the malted barley, um, we get it from a larger company. But there was a malt house. I was thinking, you know, that's
0: I, I was thinking about that when we were in the mill, yeah. and I was thinking, did he have a malt house he on did. the property? And is that something that is open for development in the future here?
1: Oh, I'd love to see it rebuilt, because we have a description, uh, a documentation of its construction. With details. So I'd love to be able to do that down the road. And the Cooperage that was here, we've talked about that. We just haven't found either one archaeologically. They're here. We just can't.
0: So they could be under the parking lot out there or somewhere else that just I, hasn't been excavated yet. I think the, I'm
1: afraid I think the Cooperage is where the Route 235 is today. Okay. But uh, usually when we do a reconstruction here at Mount Vernon, we want to build right on top of the original remains. But we could always make an editorial decision to know that we knew these buildings were here for the purposes of interpretation of the site, we could reconstruct them. So maybe that'll happen, you know, but I'd love to see us be able to malt here. I think having that educational piece and and bringing history
0: to life and and allowing people to see um, in person, you know, the malt house, cooperages, and seeing that. I mean, literally now you've got everything on site that you're producing other than just bringing some of the grains in, but you're milling them right here on site.
1: Yeah, we mill everything in in the grist mill, and that's what I love too is that Not only are we running wood-fired pots and fermenting in this old method of that 18th century, it all starts in the grist mill. So when we start a whiskey run, our whiskey runs the size they are. It's about 10 to 12,000 pounds of grain go through the mill. And um, so it's neat when the stills are running, and you know next door that water wheel is running just as it did in the 18th century. And, um, And occasionally in the middle of whiskey, the retail shops need grits. So we have to pull the stones apart, clean out the rye, Lay it back down, run grits, and then been back on rise. So for someone who's into living history, for us, like you met Corey, our head Miller. Yes. Um, we. But that's our what would have nerds, happened, we, right? We,
0: we love that. But that's what would have happened. I mean, if if you're a Miller, if you're running the mill, and you know you've got different calls for different things, and somebody says, you know, I'm doing this, you would stop and re-
1: recast everything, or you know, do all that, right? Yeah, we'd jump back into the next grain. Especially yeah. back then, if George Washington said, "I need A or B." <laughs> And, uh, and you couldn't get much passed on Washington about many topics, but especially grain and farming. You can see in the records some of the letters to the farm managers uh, and different dealings with different millers. Some were good, some not so good. And it's interesting to read that because he understood grain from beginning to end. From beginning he, to he, end.
0: He, we talked about that as we walked over from the mill. He, from my take on what you expressed and explained, he was really ahead of his time. Um, from a, a milling and grain standpoint, um, as, as early as the country was in its history, but he seemed like he was on the cusp of, of being ahead of the curve.
1: Yeah, he was a, a man who studied agricultural and husbandry and read a lot about the changes that were happening in the first attempts at really applying scientific method to farming methods and um, For the small farmer, you know that 's difficult to change and do because you, you know you can ruin a crop and you 're done. Washington, being a wealthy man and having such a reputation, particularly after the Revolution, status and his reputation as a leader in our country, people send him grains. He gets all sorts of grains sent to him, and we have all those recorded. They sent him grains... To pay homage? They sent him grains to see so what he... Knew, knew he was a farmer, and, and he corresponded with different people, and so someone would send this wheat varietal or this sort of seed, and he notes all that in his notebooks. Okay. So then he's planting those and seeing which ones are going to work best for him. And he liked the white wheat for export flour. And the neat thing is we've been grinding recently some white Lamas wheat that we get from Anson Mills in South Carolina and Glenn Roberts. And actually uh, our, our friend Justin Cherry, who's an 18th century baker, He's been using those in a period bake oven, uh, making bread. So that's the other thing we like to do is tie these buildings, tie us to the past in a tangible way, not just with the stories, but the products that we do and the type of grinding we do. And we're mirroring what was happening here in the 18th century, which is, I think, important historically to, to move in that direction. And we're going to go in that direction more, I think, in the coming years with heirloom grains.
0: Why do you think that's important today? As a historian, as a recreator, as a, um, as a man who's bringing history to life, why is that important?
1: Well, I think uh, it's not wise to be disconnected from your past. And also, it connects you to human beings in a special way, too, I think. Because uh, you could look at the struggles people had in different eras and it gives you some perspective and context. And I think when you study anything, if you lose context, you're distorting. Things. So it's by studying the past, learning from it, but learning about it. It helps us connect to what you know, our nation and civics and all sorts of things that are important today. And so, uh, and with the trades, being a tradesman, I think preserving these old trades is very important in and of itself as well. Because you know uh, everything is so high tech, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think this is just how I feel about it. The further we are from some of the traditional things, like when you think about food, you know, processed food versus healthier foods. I think that we're all feeling that distortion a bit. And so I think by going and visiting, even if you're not into history, visiting a historic site, it just connects you to part of your humanity, I think, because all every culture, every place has its history. And, you know, you like to travel. I'm sure I do, too. And you dive into something, you learn something, and then it, you also can see, well, you know, there's that human element once again you know you, there's we have more in common than we have that's not in common right and yeah. I think that's you you hit on that as important because there's so many similarities that we
0: all have as you know citizens of the world right we have so many more things that are common versus what really separates us but I don't want to get too far off topic mm-hmm. but what you do here is you help us understand the commonality of who we are as, as citizens as human beings now you have and you touched upon, you know, you have buses that come and, and, and school-age children that come, and a lot of that's not being done because of COVID. Right. But while you were doing that, um, what was the takeaway? That, you know, why did, you know they, as they show up, you're showing them the mill, you're showing them the distillery. What, what was the most important for you as a takeaway for them, even, you know, even as parents and just regular tourists of, you know, like Dawn and I today? What's the takeaway?
1: Well, I hope that they, uh, you know, for my department, We hope that they leave understanding how this plantation worked and and Washington's role as a farmer, really. We hope they take that away. We also hope they take away the dynamics of who lived and worked here, the enslaved population that worked in the fields. There were six young enslaved men working here in the distillery along with two paid staff. So we want that whole story to be told. And, And through that, understanding the 18th century better and Washington better and maybe by being in these buildings, you understand the lives, how people lived back then or did a trade back then. So uh, and, and a, beyond that, there's so many different educational components that Mount Vernon has. It's kind of interesting because if you tour the mansion or in the historic area or you go to the farm, all of that is pieces of a puzzle. So when the visitor goes through the museum at the end, hopefully when they go home, they see a pretty complete picture of a place and of Washington and others who lived and worked here. So that's, you know, our hope is they get enough of that and have enough interest that maybe they'll look a little deeper. Because there's so much here you can't you could spend two days in the museum. Yeah, I, I think what you do you know, is you have
0: at least from our experience right now, I think you for the little that we've seen with you today, we've had we have so much more of an appreciation for the mill side of things, the distillation side, the fermentation side of, of what goes on here. Um, you have more of an appreciation for the science, the background, the knowledge, the the, the, the experience. I, I think that really comes out for us.
1: Yeah, and everywhere you would go, like if you had time to go to the estate, there's always something different going on in every different season. We have a livestock department, too, so we have actually a couple heritage breeds that are raised here, hog island sheep and ossoball pigs, along with mules and donkeys and horses and oxen. So we can't recreate it completely as it was, but we're bringing elements of the living history farm to life. And so to come to a place like this, you might have 10 different types of points of view you're looking at it from, but... There is something for everybody here uh, to learn. So hopefully they take what, away some, you know, solid information that maybe even drives further thought for them when they get home, and, and they, maybe more discovery. Yeah, maybe they go online then and research something they heard and they want to learn more. So we're, we're basically our our, main, our mission statement is education and preservation are key elements. So it's not just you know teaching, but we preserve these original buildings. Although we're in reconstructions right now, this is a reconstruction. The mill is, you know, the mansion is the original mansion, and there's over a dozen original outbuildings around the mansion. So that's our other part of our legacy is to take care of that. And initially, that's why the Ladies' Association was formed, to, to save that house. Another few years, it would have been gone.
0: Yeah. I and mean, the same thing with, uh, was it Monticello? mm mm-hmm. um, that, that, that was in ruins as well. It's a, so it's fascinating to me, all these houses that you know kind of went into disrepair. Yeah. A lot now, to keep up. Yeah. Now, we have the mash tons back here. Right. We're doing fermentation. We've got it fermented. What happens next?
1: Well, uh, we do a three to four day ferment, and then what happens is we have to bucket mash into the pot stills. So the heads of the stills come off, and you could pour right into the throat of the still, the opening there. And so that's how it starts. Uh, you know, on a distillation run, we have like three days you set fermenters each day, and then on that fourth day, the first three are ready to go, and it's a bucket brigade filling all the stills. Fires are lit. We keep setting mash so the middle part of the run, you've got five stills running and fermentation being set each day. And that, that goes on for a number of days as we move through the run. And then everything's consolidated near the end and we do our double distillation there at the end. To so
0: all everything. all of what's distilled is all brought together and you're distilling all
1: that in a final run. Yeah, we do finish runs after after all the fermentation runs are done, the, the, the first pass. And we make an unaged whiskey. We also aged some of our whiskeys, but in the 18th century they didn't barrel age, so people drank it clear and right away. So we always want to make a little bit of unaged rye to be true to what was made here in the 18th century. And I poured you a little bit of I that. I saw. There. I'm. I'm <laughs> I trust me. I'm, I'm. I'm eyeing it. I'm
0: being. I'm. I'm being good. Um, now you, everything's wood fired. Right. So you're wood firing your still. Now talk about that. And to control that heat versus, you know, it, had, you, had you brought in gas or electric and just kind of given the optics of wood. But you you do it with wood. How does that affect the distillation process and what, what you need to do?
1: Well, you have to really learn how to manage fire well because you can really impact negatively a distillation if you don't run your fires right. Um, and that was learning curve for us. So we cut wood to a certain size. We feed it. certain way so many at a time and how we spread the fire out over time and then we know when we can push it a little and when we shouldn't um and then what flows out the back you know you have to pay attention to that stream uh and and that's going to tell you some things about where your fire is because there's no dial on there there's no control setting
0: yeah there's no pressure gauges there's nothing
1: yeah so and that was just experimentation and time and some help from you know one or two friends of ours one englishman that's a good friend of ours who uh, I always reference him and related to the fires because uh, he ran the kitchens at the for the royal palaces, and his name's Mark Meltonville. So he worked at Hampton Court Palace for over two decades, and those are the Henry VIII kitchens that survive. And Mark pointed out to us one time, helping us about some issues we were having, the way we're laying the fire. He says is is impacting the still in this manner, and so Mark really kind of coached us because he would come and spend two three weeks here work with us. And that, then we teach everybody that runs fires how to do that properly. So when we have new people on staff, they always get a chance to run the still. And it's on-the-job training, but you have somebody skilled there with them to show them the ropes. But that took time. You know, I think the first two or three or four runs, certainly the first year and a half to two years, we were probably making mistakes not really knowing. <laughs> and, but I think we're really good at it now.
0: For you, you're coming from the mill background entering into the distiller background how did you you know how was it for you to learn where you make your cuts and and going through the distillation process
1: well that took time too because you know uh like early days dave was here all the time he'd come spend 25 days with us so you know uh i was still in a bit of a laborer mode you know i'd listen and watch and learn and uh but he would make a lot of the cuts for us and had certain way of doing it with the tails as well. We've worked with a couple other people making brandy in here, like Ted Huber from Starlight Distilleries worked with us, Thomas McKenzie. And so they had their own way of doing it, so each you kind of learn and listen. And then Lisa was really good at coaching us through that and pointing things out to me. And so you know, just pay attention to these sort of people when they're in here, and that's how you learn how to do that. You're doing the white whiskey. You're doing the rye whiskey
0: because that's what George Washington produced initially. Right. And you mentioned it was a clear spirit. Wasn't aged, and then he would sell it, or he would consume it on at the at the at, at his home. How would what would happen after that? Well, this was a commercial distillery. This was essentially people. he he built this because he saw the grain that was being milled, and he said, "I can make money from this."
1: Well, there was a, an important person in the middle of all that. In 1797, Washington hires James Anderson, who's a Scottish immigrant who had been involved in distilling and milling and farming in Scotland. He came to America in 1791. He sees this position of farm manager advertised. He writes Washington a letter, and it's an interesting letter because he said, you know, I've been on your farm. I mean, he's really making the pitch for himself because he had been up in this area for some business or something, and so he knew the estate some had been on Washington's farm. And he gets the job, and Anderson is the man who writes Washington and says, you need a distillery behind your mill. It'll complete your farm business plan, and, you know, I know how to do this. make a lot of money for you. And that's how the idea starts. So Washington at this time was sixty-five, so he's just returning from the presidency. I don't think he had any inkling or desire to launch into a big whiskey project. Had he not hired James Anderson, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So you know? just just
0: to kind of give you that picture, because entertainment wise, he did have spirits or he did have he did serve alcohol. Yeah, quite a bit. In and, the estate at the, at his house, but was that mostly wine, beer, rum, Madeira, wine? But those were all imported or exp- Those were all brought in, right? He, nothing. Did he like? Because I know that uh, Jefferson had a brewery. He also had a winery,
1: I believe. Well, Washington bought for the estate's needs, but I do know um, that he did own two stills as early as 1760. So it's likely they were making, you know, some brandy. Okay, like any, you know, farm distilling but most of what he had to get was consumer goods were purchased and rum was there was a rum was huge in early america as you know and there was a distillery in alexandria that he bought you know for himself but also for incentive pay rations you know alcohol was handed out at holidays etc so it was just a part of the fi- fabric of the life then so but i don't think he had any intention you know when he was retiring from the presidency that he would get into a large distilling operation it was really anderson's idea washington is reluctant but he also says it's it's a business I'm unfamiliar with. You know, he knows alcohol but running an alcohol business is a different story. So Washington agreed. He said I agree but you can make whiskey in the in the Cooperage. And that's typical Washington too. He's not going to throw a lot of money at a problem or a thing. So he says, "All right, you can make whiskey. Put two stills in the Cooperage." And then basically I think he's also saying, "Let's see how this goes." Okay. And so that was 1797. So James Anderson, the farm manager, has a son. He has six or seven kids, but his oldest son, John, is in his 20s. And John and an enslaved man working two stills in the cooperage make 600 gallons of whiskey in 1797. Alexandria is the market. It's a big town. It's a port. So that's a key city for Washington. It goes in there, sold right away, money comes right back. So Washington starts, I think, to realize this could be a good like the, like the gentleman
0: that you mentioned here that said we never make whiskey. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, the, the, it, it, the Jim it comes, Reese moment. It yeah.
0: comes full circle.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then Washington thinks harder about it. And the last thing he does before he goes, goes bigger and actually builds this is he writes a friend named John Fitzgerald who had been in the military with him. And Fitzgerald had once owned that big rum distillery in Alexandria. And the letter, which we have, comes back and says that Anderson – basically has a good reputation, knows what he's doing. And if you make good whiskey, it will sell. And probably more than you can imagine, it will sell. Quantities will be certainly sold. So that sealed it for Washington, and he gave instructions for Anderson to go forward. So October 1797, they break ground here on this new distillery. And uh, it's a big distillery for the day. It's 75 feet by 33 feet, and they put in five copper pot stills it with a boiler. Fifty mash tubs were in here. Fifty. Fifty. I have, I have 24, I think, 18 maybe. Fifty of those things were in here. And they built a malt house. The cooperage is already here. And they start making rye. So 1798, they made 4,500 gallons of rye here. And the big year was the last year of Washington's life, sadly, 1799. They made 10,942 gallons of whiskey and a few hundred gallons of peach and apple and persimmon brandy. As, as a distillery, it sounds like it was a
0: well-known, respected, desired product to have on the market.
1: I would think so. They didn't, of course, as you know, label or, or market whiskey like they do today. So it went into town just in barrels. You know, it wasn't like stamped George Washington whiskey. But I always say to tour groups, if you are a tavern owner or a merchant in Alexandria and Washington's now home again after all that he's done serving the country and being president... And in the tavern, you say, you you know, this came from General Washington's distillery. You know, that would have sold that. Oh, absolutely. It was moving to sell that many gallons. It was moving quite well. And, and
0: I'm sure the quality of the product would be something where, you know, if you and I go into Alexandria back in that time, you'd be maybe going to the bar and saying, hey, do you have any of the Washington rye?
1: Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. because. As you know, sometimes in those taverns, barrels come in and they all get dumped together in some big vat. That's true, you know, yeah, and and flavor notes and what people were trying to get, even in the early nineteenth century is not what we think of in whiskey today. So uh, I think they would have certainly you know Washington didn't trade on his name that way, but if you owned a tavern, you would have you would have made that notation. oh, by the way, I bought this from Mount Vernon's distillery, and that would have carried some weight. but for Washington, it was just rye whiskey. It was a commodity to make money and help his farm and and, again, the Andersons are the key people, though. So I think James and his son, John. And they had an assistant distiller here, too, named Peter Bingle. And then the six young enslaved men that worked here. That was a crew of eight that made all those gallons in two years. Pretty pretty amazing, you know, as I describe how they Yeah, did. they were working almost around the clock, I would imagine. I would think to make yeah. that many gallons. And, um, of course, in the summer, the creek is often low. The mill can't run, so they really couldn't run year-round. And, plus, in the summer... This would be unbearable. Yeah. So they obviously pushed it at certain times of year when they had the water and it was cooler and they they made that whiskey. So
0: I've been patient. You poured us some rye. This is the clear spirit with the mash bill
1: of. It's about 55 to 60 percent rye, which is his mash bill, and about a little over 30 percent corn and then the remainder malted barley. Now, the rye you're using is? It's a bruisey. And uh, it's a Virginia rye. Uh, I'm playing around looking for earlier varietals, hopefully. We try to get Virginia-grown grains. You know, but that's, again, like I said earlier, we're kind of in this phase now where we can start to look down other avenues about grain choices. And Washington grew a lot of rye, but this building uses so much grain in the 18th century, he had to buy corn and sometimes rye from other sources to feed this building because it was so big. And he got recently found out that One of the records that uh, he got some rye from Maryland, which was neat. Because, you know, the ferries cross right over there across from Mount Vernon. And we know the area he bought some rye from in 1799. So pieces of the puzzle keep coming in. That's what's neat about it. And I
0: think the more you, you
1: you know, you flash, you you shoot the flashlight at different areas, you're going to start seeing some
0: different things. Mm -hmm. With this, I get, it's a very sweet nose. It's a very clean, I'm imagining you're around 90 proof on this. It's 86. 86. But there's not a very ethanol forward nose to this.
1: No, um, I, I think it's a very clean distillation. And again, I uh, always give credit where credit is due. and is that you know Lisa Wicker come in here to help us change our fermentation methods and teach us some things about how we were doing it and that getting better at running stills. That's your result. What
0: specifically, as you know, Lisa helping out and helping change some direction, what what has changed it from the original runs to where you are now that are more distinctive?
1: I just think we have a lot... Well, I know we have less bacterial contamination issues. Like in the early days, we were having some trouble with that. We also... Um, she wrote a new MASH protocol for us, which I really don't want to get into all the details. You don't have that. to. This is proprietary but, secret. But uh, it's just... Uh, it's just made a big difference in flavor and yield. And, and you know she's got a lot of unique abilities as in, you know, and her abilities as a distiller and, and, and fermentation. But that really was a game changer and she helped us just create better spirit. And I do know we're better at running stills and making cuts. So all that combined. But if you don't have a good fermentation, that's where it all starts. As you know, if that goes wrong or has a problem or a flaw, it's going to show up down the line. And whatever you produce, so I think that you know we've uh, made a lot of adjustments in, in in a building that's tricky to adjust sometimes because all the different variables in here you can't narrow it down. Like what what was the one variable that went this way or that way? Some of it's out. Al- you know, I hate to use the word alchemy, but this type of distilling, you're flying by the seat of your pants sometimes.
0: That's why I'm saying with the open fermenters and and all the different variables that you have going, there are things that are being uh, introduced that sometimes from fermentation to fermentation may change a little bit.
1: And and there's times with weather that we, like, get impacted in here, you know. Like there's a window over there on the mash floor, and you know those two fermenters that are near there are going to be a little different than the ones up there the boiler. Things like that. So we've learned our building. Temperature change or just what would just come in or escape out the window. Yeah, because we have the windows open because of safety. That's another exit in here, you know. <laughs> if, yeah don't close that window <laughs> well if you i hate to be uh, uh, you know crazy but if like you're on fire you don't want to have to stop and open a window no you know so we have various safety protocol we follow in here because you know distilleries are dangerous places you have to be have a plan which we do
0: a lot of pepper on this yeah a lot of pepper forward
1: you get corn notes at the end yeah yeah, it's that thirty percent corn. Just component comes it comes on the finish, really, and it, that's where that other sweet note gets, comes in yeah, at the back. Yeah,
0: it's more sweet as, as it finishes. But this
1: is a great sipper. I, I, I I'm trying to imagine
0: Washington at his table with his guests, and he just he's just smiling to himself, like, yeah, that that I made that, or <laughs> I that that's my distillery.
1: Well, the uh, like like you're doing now. This yeah, is your made. distillery. You <laughs> made this. Well, I've got a team here that does a great job. I'm I'm lucky to lead them, but. Uh, one night in the house that's it's documented, Washington had had some champagne, and the guy that wrote in his do- about this account, it, it's a night you wish you could have been in there because said the general told us tales of the war. That'd have been a night to be sitting around the table, to hear Washington talk about the revolution. You know, so because not all uh, you know Washington sometimes was. Not stoic, but if he knew the people he was having dinner with, he would be more talkative. You know, a lot of times he's entertaining people and he's a very reserved guy. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have a lot churning inside of him because he did have a a rough temper, it was known. But he kept it in check most of the time. To have been there on a night when he was comfortable, that would have been a fun experience to hear him talk about the revolution or elements of that part of the That's why
0: I said I, I can only imagine how once the spirit was flowing and just the conversation... But knowing that you're producing everything in your on your estate, on your farm, the, the pride or just what would come out of that. I, I might comment, Mr. Washington, this is the best rye I've ever had or mm. this, you know, because it's an honest compliment that you would make to him, I guess, at the time. Um, mm. And just, just the conversation, the, the historical notes that would come out of all that. Oh, yeah. I, I get almost like a, a pine finish. And I don't know if anybody's kind of shared that. No. You know, it's like there's like a little bit of where I'm thinking this, this almost is like a gin in a way. Interesting. Like there's a little bit of a piney or a minty. I can see that. Yeah. To that. But that's like, it's like nice and white. You know, we're in a building right now, and I, I guess it's like 40 some degrees in here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm welcoming that, that warmth the warm and that, that, is, that pine is there. needed. Now, what would happen? I mean, we, we talk about the cooperage here. This was a clear spirit. It was in the barrels for how long before it would get to Alexandria where there would be an aged opportunity?
1: Well, the the barrels aren't charred. When they build a barrel to bend staves, there's going to be a small fire that the barrel sits over. So one could make an argument that some of these barrels may have received some small level of toast, not as on purpose, but as they're forming the barrel up until they get the heads in, the barrel finished. So that's always something I've thought about in the last few years is did some of the spirit actually get something from that by that, you know, Yeah, I'm
0: curious as to—it was nine miles away to Alexandria. Yeah. So, so. you figure you're putting it on a—did was it? Did it go by water? Or did it go by, um, by
1: land? Either, both. It depends on—because Washington has carts that go into town regularly, but sometimes if the carts are busy doing a job, they might send it by the boats or vice versa. Like in spring when they're fishing, the fisheries are really big, active— It's probably the carts taking it in, so so it it takes it it gets in there the same day. Okay, and then you know people are consuming a lot in Alexandria, so it's hard to know how long how long was sat in the barrel, or in the tavern, or anything else. Yeah, the brandies were aged. You know, there there are brandies that could be purchased in the 18th century that definitely are aged, and um, but for the American market, you know, the way people drank, it was you know probably didn't sit there too long. Off the still, in the mouth, it was. As fast as he could produce it, they were drinking it. Well, our joke on tour here is that it ages from here to Alexandria. Gotcha. That's about That's it.
0: what I'm saying. I mean, from if you're listening to the podcast and you've never been here, you're talking about nine miles away, you know, traveling the roads, having it slosh around the barrel. How long would it stay? What kind of flavors or nuances would it pick up? And, you know, that's why I'm wondering how much maybe a barrel finish by the time it got there changed what was here. It's hard to know, but I, I just don't know. It's hard to answer that. All right. So is- that's the next experiment is to have a couple barrels, fill them up, horse-draw them to Alexandria, and see what kind of happens out of that. Do you realize what type of traffic jam I could cause <laughs> on northern Virginia with an ox car? It's worth a try.
1: Yeah. I'll get, get the a- History Channel out here and let them film that. It'll take me forever. I'll get a, like nine <laughs> tickets on the way. And the littering on the parkway as well. Well, okay.
0: <laughs> we'll figure it out. Now, you mentioned that there are some different things that you're looking to do or some avenues you're going down. So, so what are some of those that you're taking with the distillery?
1: Well, there's some on the table here that I wanted to talk briefly about. It's Let's that do it. it
0: Let's we, talk we, about we, some
1: other expressions. We always do the rye, but we also barrel age rye. So we have, a, we have a straight rye that's you know two to three years old. And then we have our premium, which is four years, four and a half. But so far, all we've done is small barrel aging, 25-gallon barrels, but we've now been laying down 53s since 2016. So those whiskeys are yet to come. And then occasionally we go outside portfolio. So I have the single malt whiskey, the George Washington single malt, and then we did rum in 2018. The single malt was never released. It was a, really for fundraising. And so there are only 30 of these that existed, 30 of these bottles. And we gave them to other charities, we gave some to Discus, and this was made with uh, three Scottish distillers that came over, Bill Lumsden, Andy Kant, and John Campbell. And so that was a collaborative effort to raise money. So and
0: again, the grains were milled here?
1: Yeah, and it was Scottish malt that Bill sent me. We milled them in the mill, we fermented the proper way, you know, taking the solids out so it was a true wash that went in the still. And it was aged Two years, eight months in you know, American Oak that had been over in Scotland that Bill had coopered down because was were small, a very small run. In the last four months, it was in Madeira Cass. So this was a, a special distillation to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Scotch Whiskey Association, connecting the heritage of Scotland with James Anderson, the farm manager who was Scottish, and working with these Scottish distillers. So that was one of our specials that we've done. And then the rum was done in 2018 because Mount Vernon... Uh, republished Washington's Barbados diaries, which he wrote when he was 19. It was the only time he ever traveled outside of North America. And he went with his older brother, Lawrence, his half-brother, who is... Lawrence had tuberculosis, they thought the Caribbean air would be good for him. It's also a business trip, and Washington got exposed to the sugarcane culture, to rum culture, to sea travel, and so he kept a short diary of that trip. And so they were going to republish it, and so we made rum in honor of that to go with that that republication. And this we worked on with uh, Lisa Wicker and Maggie Campbell from Privateer Rum, came down and helped us with this. So that was, you know, going outside the normal portfolio occasionally is fun, and we do them for special reasons uh, or special stories we're trying to tell. Um, and we also make peach and apple brandy, which I think I have a little bit of that around here too. I have
0: a question for you about yeah. rum, because you mentioned that there was a rum distillery close by or not mm-hmm. too far. Yep. Obviously, Washington had, had access to all these grains here, either on his farm or or close by, so making whiskey was, you know, something that was thought about. But rum back in the time was very prevalent. What was it that kept him from just distilling some rum here or, um, you know, some molasses or, or making rum
1: here at the distillery? It was just so readily available in town. and, and, and So as a product, he
0: did, as a businessman, he didn't see any value
1: in it. There's no value in it, and he would have been one of many in pre-revolution. There was so much rum in the colonies. It wouldn't have been the venture. And he, you know, at that time he wasn't even thinking of being in distilling and that comes after the presidency. So it was readily available. He could purchase it from other makers and, uh, also could get it, you know, they, they have often listed in the papers as continental rum or you'll see Jamaican rum, Barbadian rum. So there was continental stuff that was made, but stuff that was imported from the islands as well. And there was plenty of it around. So again, it was for Washington, it's all about a business
0: decision. It wasn't a passion. He really didn't have any passions he followed.
1: It was more of a business. Is that pretty accurate about Washington? Well, he had, he had a lot of passions. He just, uh, businessman-wise and money-wise, I think he had learned from his mistakes in his youth and things to handle money in a very frugal way. Uh, so he would invest in things he thought that would make money, but they had to be, you know, provable. That story of the distillery is a good example of you can use the cooperage, you know, and like— 1798 he's looking at new threshing machines that have been invented Uh, and he writes a couple letters to people one to Thomas Jefferson and he says well the one I went to look at the man demonstrating it couldn't even get it to run so you know I'll I'll, I'll wait he says he's looking for the and he ends up buying one after it's tested and he, he goes to see that it operates properly so he certainly invested in things that he thought were wise decisions but he wasn't one to throw money you know away frivolously and he had a lot of passions before the war he Loved to fox hunt. There's a lot of notes in his diary about fox hunting. Um, he, uh, I think, he had deep passions. I think he just learned to control his demeanor very well. It was something in that society of that time for him to, you know. And as he becomes more famous, I think he felt like, as president, certain decorum was appropriate or a commanding officer. But there, there's stories of him losing his temper during the war, and people that witnessed it said, you know, the words that they'd never heard coming out of his mouth, but that's an instance where it was life or death, you know, so he certainly could get heated uh, when when it required it, but, um, so I think that he looked at this building, and like he did the farm, as a a business opportunity. Now, you mentioned peach brandy,
0: you mentioned apple brandy, and you also said something, he distilled persimmon?
1: Yeah, persimmon brandy, and that's the one thing we haven't done that we will do at some point. We had kind of planned on it maybe this year, but this whole year of craziness has interrupted a lot of plans. So that's going to be done at some point in the next year or two. And we just finished an apple brandy run in November. Uh, Because of the COVID situation, the way we make whiskey, I couldn't have eight or nine people in this small building that close to each other, row and mash. So we did a a brandy run. and We have an orchard partner in Maryland that we get the apples from. So that went really well, and uh, we will barrel that soon. So we made productive use in November. You know, we got a run-in even though it wasn't rye.
0: So right now, there's from from where we stand today, when's the next time you'll start distilling
1: again? March. March. Yeah, because now we're entering the winter phase. We'll be running the mill probably another week and a half because we have a lot of product to make for retail. And we also supply a couple small restaurants with a little bit of product. And we want to stock up our retail shops for Christmas sales and carry them through the new year a little bit. And then January is... Uh, a time of maintenance, so the millwright will come and work on the water mill. We've got some maintenance works to do on these fireboxes. Mike Sherman's going to come check out an issue I have with one of the stills and just make sure everything's good there. So those are those January, February are really maintenance. We'll also probably sharpen the millstones in February, which is done by hand, recutting all the furrows on the stones. And then late February, if everything's good, we'll fire the mill up, and if we can make rye, we will. If not, it's probably going to be peach brandy.
0: So you're really going to be determined based on, when you say if we can, is that based on supply, based on COVID? Because to make whiskey, it's a matter of how many people you can
1: have here. Yeah, and we run, and we make whiskey, we run all five stills. Okay. So we do brandy, we were running three stills. And what I did is I split it up over a period of time in November, so we only had like three days a week that we had three or four people in here, max, running three stills.
0: So this is really how COVID has affected what you're doing here. And besides the impact of how people can visit you and how many people you could have visit and right. see what you're doing, it's really affected the production as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. The estate was closed from mid-March or whatever that date was when everything really hit until June 18th, I believe. And then they just opened the grounds. We, we at the Distillery and Mill, we're three miles from the main estate, three miles from the mansion. Uh, we stayed closed all summer here. And in September, we were open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. We did tastings on Saturdays. It went really well. It was Spirits Month in Virginia in September, so there was a discount on Spirits. So we did really good on the revenue side. And then we were open three weekends in October. And then we had a big uh, work to do on the farm, so we we closed this site. Because the other thing was, sadly, you know, we've we've all had cutbacks in staffing. And uh, we just don't have the same number of full-time people. And that meant we had to allocate resources in a certain way. And then... Well, on volunteer distilling days, if you
0: ever need just hands <laughs> to come in and help, I'd be fascinated. I think this would be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that would want to come in and learn the process of how this was done back in the 1700s. Yeah, we get lots of requests. For Not, that, but, yeah. but you yeah, have take, kind of, can't take everyone. You kind of have to go through a, a background screening and everything else. Yeah,
1: the vetting, <laughs> the vetting process. But... Uh, You know, we'll see what happens. If things are better, if the vaccine is out and seems to be working, maybe we can make rye, but we're just going to err on the side of caution and safety and uh, take care of the staff we have. And if we can only do peach, we need peach anyway. We're down to the last two barrels that we have aging that'll be bottled, you know, probably early in the year. So So brandy
0: may seem to be more of the focus as far as what will be distilled because you need less people on site to do so.
1: Yeah, it's just a much smaller run.
0: That means those barrels that you have laid down will become even more valuable.
1: They are valuable. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, we'll, and we'll hopefully, you know, I mean, we'll hopefully make rye, if not March, November next year. We'll be back on it. And then we also made bourbon two years ago for the first time. So that's going to age a good long time. We're not, you know... No 25 more, gallon or... They're 53. They're 53. So 53. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we used white corn from Kentucky and then Virginia red May winter wheat. So it's a weeded bourbon, Mashville. And I found a reference in an early farm report that they didn't have enough rye and some of those runs in the cooperage, and they were using wheat tailings and corn, so I've kind of tied that to that historical document. And we will age that probably four, some of it four years. I've got a number of barrels of it, so we'll release it in stages. One of the thoughts is, is 2026 is the big anniversary of the American Revolution, and so there is some discussion about releasing a seven-year-old George Washington bourbon at that time, which will be, I think, a nice thing to release. Well, that's... everybody's
0: ears just perked up <laughs> that uh, that might be coming down the plate. That's exciting.
1: Yeah, and I hope to hold some of that longer, you know, because uh, I have a little more control over some of those decisions than I did in my first few years here. So I've been here long enough to where, they, you know, I do get to get my input on that. Like, let's hold that back. Let's, let's release this now. And I think, you know... W- I just really want to see what it would be like 10 years old to have some of that bourbon come Well, out how of often time. do you, you know, taste in what's laid down? I mean, do you, do you kind of go back to it on a monthly basis? Uh, not monthly. I mean, I, I've been tasting a little more being in here in the fall because there's some barrels over there that are getting close to four years old. Um, the bourbon I tasted in September, and it's young, so, you know, you know the path they take. Sometimes they can go yep, up and down. Way. Yep, yep. And so, uh, you know, I kind of know where that's at. The peach brandy over there is getting close to three years old. It's in a used barrel, and that was just fantastic. So, you know, I just look for moments when not a lot's going on, and I can pop in at the end of the day and check things out.
0: Now, with the distillery we're now, is this the only area that you're storing barrels? Because I know you kind of motioned different ways when you said barrels. Well,
1: we're running out of storage space as the program has grown, and we're making more proof gallons. And again, everybody should understand we're still super small. Right. But, you know... I don't have a big warehouse anywhere. So I do have a small barrel rack down by my office, which is on the estate down by the farm. So I've got some barrels there, some twenty fives and fifty threes, and then some fifty threes here over in the corner. And then there's a room on the other side of that stone wall, which in the 18th century was the barrel room and office. So I've got those uh, stacked up in there. But we need we're, we're moving toward creating another building on the estate, which is you know not a period building, but behind right. the scenes where we could have more equipment to bottle and now, things I'm like thinking,
0: that. I mean, again, you have to remember that it was a white spirit, right? So it wasn't like George Washington had a rickhouse or a barrel house for his whiskeys. Not at all. Um, so the idea is that you're what you're doing now is you're creating, you know, from the industry that George Washington created, you're moving forward with another
1: entity, right? Yeah, and we've, uh, you know, we're, we're always historical site that's what our main focus is always going to be but because of the growth of the program and the distillation and it being well received it's it's got it, it it's got its own little how would i say we have our own little niche in in the in the modern whiskey world too and i think it speaks to people in a couple different ways i'm, I'm you know proud of what we make and i think it's quality spirits but people as we've been talking about Love the history of distillation. Well, what did you pour first now? That's the two-year-old straight rye. And so that's... Uh...
0: The floral notes really go away. And what you're left with is spice on the nose. I get cinnamon, clove, the, you know, the baking spices. You, you start to get the oakiness of the barrel on there. Yeah. You know, the vanillas, the caramel notes that come out on the nose... Now I'm fascinated or be interested is as to, to how the you know this is an unheated building, so you've got a lot of movement in these barrels, figuring with the seasons yeah. moving in and out of the wood
1: yeah, the thing is there's the walls are fairly thick you know and uh, and the other thing is uh because of the boiler and certain tours we do in here, this can be a moist environment sometimes, so that's why I move you know, next door or down to the farm. So they stay in here for a short time, but it's not the optimum space, this particular room, for aging. That's why, you know, if we have that building built, we're going to be in a lot better shape. But we've had to do a lot by trial and error here because, again, as I told you the story, it never was initially thought we'd push it this hard. Then we have small runs with Dave Pickerel helping us where we might fill three barrels or six small barrels a year. And then we were up to the point where, you know, the first time we made whiskey, we set 12 fermentations. Right. That bourbon uh, in November 2018, we set 54 fermentations. So what consequently happens is, oh, we want to age longer. Oh, we'll put it in bigger barrels, which is appropriate. And now we're like, where are we going to store all this stuff? (laughs) So all these economies of scale have hit us. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in the midst of solving those problems. But I think working for a museum... You know, knowing our mission, luckily, you know, they understand we need more room and we're working towards that. I think the COVID year kind of interrupted that, too, because we were having some discussions about the type of small building we could use. Uh, And we'll get there, you know, and then once that happens, I can rearrange some things in here. So what did you think of the straight rye? I think it's delicious. And it's it's nice to
0: see when you again, when you take people through that, hey, this is the white rye and this is now we've aged this. To where that barrel is going to start to play and and take on different characteristics of what you're drinking. Um, there's there's a little more spice note I find in this now. Yeah. Not the peppery note, but you get more spice notes on here. And, you know, letting, I, I want to let this open up a little bit. and Just yeah. let the air get to it and see how that changes. Because even on my third sip, I got a little more sweetness, I guess, from the corn. From there, um, for some reason, I got, like, this little licorice that came and went real fast. That's what that is. I don't know if— There's something unique in there, and I st- I'm still trying to figure out what it is. Like, it's a, it's, it's like this—there's a grassy, earthy tone that comes in, and then there's, like, this spicy bite that, that almost tastes like a sweet licorice, and then that goes away. Um, that, that's a really nice journey on what you poured there. That is really nice. Yeah, it's a—I
1: think it's different than a lot of rice that I've— Tasted and you know, uh, of course, that can be influenced by a lot of factors. Um, Some people pick up occasionally a little smoky note in it, and that comes from not the barrel, but wood-fired stills. We're collecting this off the still in a stainless steel pot that comes to the table, gets checked and proofed, and put in a temporary storage as we're running the stills for 25 days. So, as it sits in this room, you know, there's a lot of smoke in here running five fires. So it, it doesn't present in every batch, but it does come through, and people have noted that before. Sometimes unsolicited, they'll think, oh, you know, the peat question comes up. But no, no, it's, it's the fires.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think George Washington would ever peat his rye. No, but you know what? And this is, why I love, this is why I love talking to you. You're the distiller, and the things and experiences you've had and the nuances that come out as you're explaining how the distillation process works yeah, I mean, I'm starting to pick up that smoky note. So you've identified, it's, it's not, I always look it's at it, it's suggestion. not the power of suggestion, <laughs> it's helping me understand what it is. Say, hey, listen, this is the experience, so if you're picking this up or this, you may
1: pick this up. Yeah, and, and that's what's, uh, I think, neat about this space and how we run is that I think it adds things to the distillations that are unique to here. And,
0: uh, that's why I think this is like almost like no other experience you're going to have in the United States, because anybody that's setting up a craft distillation is not going to do open wood fire. They're not going to do the fermentation the way you do these. These aren't ancient processes or, or, you know, craft processes, but this is a whole unique situation is what you're doing.
1: Yeah. And there's times where, you know, when you're into your rowing, your 40th mash tub, you think to yourself, well, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And there is, but part of what we do here with the mill and distillery and other things we do is we are recreating the methods because that's what we're here to do.
0: So you talk about the, dr- I mean, the drudgery, right? I mean, there were slaves on hand to do this work. Yes. And
1: that was part of what, you know, they were asked to do. Yep. Um, and it was a life that was hard. And Jam- James, Hanson, Nate, Pete, um, Timothy was the youngest who was 14 that worked in here. So, um, yeah, and I, we have talked about that a lot because having rowed a lot of mash, as I said, we have a deep regard for how did they create 11,000 gallons? They were going to town. That's why I said they were, they were night and day. Yeah. They, were, they were
0: working this all the time. And when you talk about, you know, rowing the mash, they, they had people to do that. It wasn't like, I, I always wonder for somebody like you, like, what gets you out of bed on days that you know that that's what
1: you're going to be doing as far as the fermentation process? I think we have a goal, and we love what we do. And we, once you start this, you know, we don't run it every month. Once you get started, you can't stop. You've got to take it to completion. So there have been times over the years where we've had snowstorms, and I'll get on the phone in the morning, and four of us can make it in. And there's four of us, and we've got stills running, and we're set mash. And we kind of take pride in that.
0: So it's the pride. I mean, I I get that from talking to you, Steve, that it's the education, it's the pride, it's the connection to history, it's, it's, do do you recognize, I mean, I'm curious, do you recognize your place in history? No, no, I don't think of it that way. But do you, if I ask you that question and you, and you reflect on that right now, this is, this is George Washington. You follow the legacy and lineage of George Washington. You're keeping, not to say that, you know, he needs his memory kept alive. But you're keeping all of, like, like you said, you have all these journals and ledgers to
1: access, to communicate to the world. That's your place. I mean, do you do you recognize that? Well, I think I've realized some time ago that I'm blessed to have come here and that I found my niche. And it started, you know, I realized when I first started to learn to run mills, I felt it. And now it's it's this place too and the stories we get to tell. So I definitely... You know, it, it's not lost on me that, you know, we're getting to tell important stories and being in this unique structure and, and actually making product that we're, we're happy with and proud of. You know, it means a lot, you know, and I've got a great crew. I always say that because I, you know, it's not me doing all this. You know, I've got a team of men and women that work in here and many of them have been on most of these runs. There's a handful that have been here from the beginning. And so they occasionally, like I said to Eric, who works for me the other day, I go, do you remember November 2010? That was the run from hell. What was that? What we mean, were, that the we run were running from- mash twice through the stills in a day. Okay. So Dave Pickrail used to call it turning and burning. We still got a fire under the pot. We drain the still quickly. We refill. We start it up again. Boost the fire up. But you're here at midnight locking the door. And so that was one of those runs where experimentation and you check the box and go, that's not the way we want to do that for a lot of reasons. But it's fun to look back. It's like, you know, one of the war wounds of this place. It's like, yeah, that was a tough one. And you think back now how much better we are at this.
0: Because it's, it's how you're, you're bring, like you talk about, you're bringing people together that can help you grow along the way. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like, again, and I don't want to belabor the point, but that was Washington's legacy, too. He realized where he had strong suits, and he realized if he could bring people of experience knowledge into the, what he was doing, it made him better.
1: Yeah, I think he tapped into um, talent, and he knew human nature really well. you know. He read people really well. And you can see that in some of the assessments of staff, both good and bad, and some of the letters are interesting to read. I think the adaptation that we do here is very much in line of Washington of being problem solvers, adapt with the equipment we have, figure out ways to make this better, and, and you know sometimes what's great is I've got a good crew, and someone will come up with an idea, and you go, "Yeah, why are we doing it that way?" Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so over the years I've had some, you know, Corey, who you met in the mill, he's a mechanic as well and a welter. So having an ace like that, you know, he, he thinks through some of these problems and he's corrected a lot of things, helped prepare a lot of things. I have a good friend who used to work with me. He lives out in Oklahoma now named Butch, and Butch was a motorcycle mechanic and raced motorcycles. And he worked in here. He was part-time getting his degree. And he came in here with his mindset, kind of an engineering mind. He goes, why are you guys doing that? That's a good question, Butch. And we make changes. So everybody contributes. Everybody something.
0: has a, a level of contribution. I'm curious, you mentioned there were six slaves. Was it six that worked? Yeah, six young
1: men that worked in here.
0: Now what happened I guess my real question is, had after here, did they go on to any kind of additional roles in in in, in stills and distilling? Did it's, they leave their
1: mark anywhere? Did they it's sad because for African Americans in that there era, no, there's a lot no of the history. story gets, you know, is lost to history. We we know yeah. some about certain enslaved people here that uh, we have a little more of their story, but for a lot of them, we have the lists and names of people. We have some references and letters, but a lot of times we don't know more than that. And I believe the five of the six men that worked here ended up going to work for the Martha's children and grandchildren on other properties after they the Washingtons had died, and they were still part of that estate, and so they went and worked uh, different properties, you know, down closer to Williamsburg, and some of the enslaved ended up at Arlington, which was the Custis Mansion, which is now Arlington National Cemetery. You know, that was Custis lands, which were Martha's children, so some of those enslaved people went there. In his will, Washington freed 123 slaves that he owned, so there are Sadly, some people that remain enslaved, some that are freed at the time. So yeah, it's hard to trace through.
0: Yeah, I'm curious with all the experience and knowledge that they learned and they worked through. If, if that was their trade, that was what they knew. Distillation for all their that part of their life is all they really had an experience with. Did they did they take that to some other place? I mean, did they? I
1: wish we could find out yeah. more because those stories would be just fascinating to know from a human perspective and from history of the industry as well, like we all know the Uncle uncle Nearest story, Jack Daniels.
0: Well, we all, when you say we all know, I mean, that that was a story that has
1: more recently history that's come out. Well, that's what I mean. In the context of Fawn Weaver's work and uh, Tracy Franklin, that's being brought to light. And so I know there's other stories out there. That's That's why I'm curious. Yeah, and so if we could, you know, and I think hopefully over time more of those will be found out. If there's enough documentation or you know, stories that can be found, and, and you just have to keep digging. And as a historian, you just keep digging. Yeah, there's stuff out there. You know, we're finding stuff all the time about these farms that we, you know, like just last year, we uh, the rye being bought some in Maryland, we didn't know that. Um, our uh, friend who is the baker I mentioned to you, Justin Cherry, um, he has 18th century bake oven, and we've been grinding grains for him. He found out two months ago from his research that Washington's Mill was supplying three bakehouses in Alexandria. We didn't know that, so next year's our tours are going to change. You know, every time we learn something like that, we we incorporate that information into the tour to make it as accurate as possible. History is always living,
0: right? I mean, there's always something new to learn.
1: Yeah, and you have to also be willing to, uh, like which we do, when we get new scholarship, we go, well, we've been saying the wrong thing. And so, you know... That's the beauty of the records we have and the research and scholarship that goes on here is people discover new things and then we can take it into the field and go, well, actually, here's what was going on. Like for years, we used to always say that Washington abandoned tobacco, which he did in 1760s, and that he only went with grains. Well, I found a letter a few years ago where Washington writes a friend and he says, I have 12 hogsheads of tobacco in the warehouse in Alexandria of my own growth. And the date of the letter is 1792. So
0: 1766,
1: no more tobacco? What it it shows is when the market got better, apparently, he thought, well, I'll take this acreage over here and I'll plant some tobacco again because the prices are right, like any businessman might do. So that's you know, we try to do that as much as we can, and there's a lot of scholars that come to Mount Vernon and, and do work here, and we get the benefit of that. So being speaking of the benefit of that, you poured another expression. Yeah, that is the four-year-old rye, so that's our, what we term our premium. And uh, I think this one's a little over four years. This is four and a half years old almost. So this is the oldest we've released thus far, but again, small barrel age, so the tannins are there. There is This is so easy to drink. It's, it's got a shorter finish than the two-year-old. That I because wish that was of the a barrel, it dries
0: out a little bit at the end. You get the, the notes of oak on there, but it, it, this is amazing. This is, this, is, this is delicious. And, What's uh, left? Because I finished it off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even offer her any know. No, I had some. Okay. It was
0: good. Very good. <laughs> no, but that was incredible. I mean, look, here's what I can say. You're, you're taking this through history, and I, and I want to emphasize that. You're, but you're, you're, you're taking your own, um, exp, you know, your, your own experiences. You're putting your own spin on the history. And that's why I said you are part of the history of what goes on here. And, you know, like, you know, a hundred years from now, they will talk about
1: Steve Bayshore. Uh, Long forgotten by then. No, I
0: I guarantee (laughs) not. And your impact on George Washington's legacy on Mount Vernon and and really what you meant to hear, And let's, you know, the other people that got it, you know, to got this, they got this distillery where it is today. It's all part of the process. But the good news is it's here. And people get to experience it and, and put into a glass something that is really living history.
1: And that's what makes these buildings, I think, uh, even more important. That if you if you toured this site and the mill didn't really run or really grind grain and you came here and you get to see all this equipment but it never was fired, it just wouldn't be the same. It's
0: like going to a car museum. Beautiful cars. Love learning learning the rich history of the cars. But I can't take them out and drive them. Yeah. I can take your spirits out and enjoy them. And know and see what they were how the process was from the mill to everything
1: else to get it to the glass. Yeah, it brings uh, a depth to it, you know, because if you look at early pictures of this building, uh, which the stills had not been fired, the brick is just pristine, you know. And Now look at all that. It's got this beautiful char and they all
0: kind of create their own character to uh, to the imprint of the wood and the, the smoke to it.
1: And and being an 18th century building, I love that, it, you know, uh, if you love the trades that you can tell this has worked. You know, it's not too polished and um, it's got the right amount of wear and tear on it now. Is there anything we haven't talked about on the podcast today,
0: sitting down, that you want to share or we should know about? Well, I'm not sure. I
1: mean... uh, Because I know there's so much inside your head. I know there's so much information (laughs) that you have. Well, I think that uh, one of the things as a Miller, and I've said this before to others, is that when you go to Pennsylvania or Kentucky, Tennessee, just... Next to every distillery was a mill, maybe on the same side or close by. I think that's something to always remember. As a miller, you know, the mills can make profit on their own, but without the mill, the distillery can't get its grain properly put together. So, it, as you tour around, you know, I, I've often thought that it'd be neat if somebody in Kentucky would build a traditional water mill as part of their, you know, the tourism of whiskey is really big. I, all those places had mills or owned mills or interested in mills, so I always find that you know intriguing. And I, I don't know, I think the other part of the story here is I think we still have more to discover about 18th century distilling because we have a few 18th century manuals that we've gotten from different sources, and some are even on Google Books, and you can read and what's interesting is we'll sit here and read that and go, hey, we do that, <laughs> that's interesting. We didn't even know it. you know. Now we have backup that they knew that then, and they were, they describe a method or a procedure that we use in here. And I think there's a lot hidden in those texts that you could help explain early distilling. So I think there's some things like that I'd like to see us work on here and maybe publish on or write about based on the knowledge that we have here of actually doing it. Because when you do something, you learn it at a deeper level. Being in here all these years has given us the opportunity to do that, so it's nice to get confirmation in some texts from 1760 and you go, yep, that's exactly what happened. Yeah,
0: because like, again, I mean, what we talked about in the beginning, this, you know, th- you had to recreate this distill. You had to recreate the distillery. You had to create the, recreate the methods based on what is here today. So you learn as you go and you're like, well, as you said, hey, I open up a, a textbook manual. We're doing that. So we know we're on the right track. Yeah. We know we're connecting to
1: what was actually done. And it also is interesting to realize because people ask, did they know about this or, or cuts and stuff? And you can find it in these texts. They understood a lot more than we give them credit for. And it doesn't mean every distiller or distillery put all that into practice, but when someone went through the time to write a text like that in the 1760s with that much detail, you know, I think they had quite a lot of knowledge about these processes. And Maybe they didn't understand all the science to the nth degree, but they were onto something, and they you know, had developed methods about how to run these places. And, and it's neat to see the parallels when we look in there and go, yeah, that's exactly how we set that mash. Or that's exactly what happens with these wood fires. It's very interesting. So you, then you feel like, okay, we're through sometime just weird osmosis. We didn't know this. It's, it's confirmation. It's not like we read the book and then tried it. We were doing it, and then we read the book and go, hey, yeah, now that now I understand this text, which I never would have understood had I not had you not had the experience of of doing what you're doing yeah. today. Yeah, I have a um, a friend who's a cooper, uh, and this that's the other fun part of my job. I think is I've I've gotten to meet a lot of really cool tradesmen over the years uh, and, and, and women that, that work in this field. And he was at Williamsburg for 15 years, and so he's a master cooper. And his name's Marshall Sheets, and he's like made barrels for us and repaired mash tubs. And his boss, James Pettingale, I think it was his name, at Williamsburg, when he came on there, Jim had been there for 40 years. And if you go back to Jim's from England, the man that trained Jim to be a cooper at this brewery, that man's master, that takes you to the 19th century. So three or four men from now, you're in the 19th century with traditional coopering. That's that carrying that trade all the way forward across the generations. And Marshall had a student from William & Mary come, apprentice in the shop there at Williamsburg. And I don't think you'll mind me telling this story, but they're writing their thesis on coopering. At the end of the summer, this person said, well, I have to go rewrite my thesis. Because having done the trade of coopering all summer, they realized, I got a lot wrong. I had wrong impressions because, again, you can read about coopering or distilling, but until you start doing some of these things, you go, oh. Wow, that's really not what the text says, or that's not what I found to be true by working the wood. So I think uh, that's the other. When you asked earlier about the value of why we teach history or do living history, there are lessons in there that you only get through that. You're not going to get it from a lecture, or you know. I mean, and it's good to read everything you can. I'm not, you know, saying don't immerse yourself in topics. Everybody should. But some of that practical knowledge, you get in a different way. And, you know, like the milling, like the water mill I ran at Stratford, the elements and how that affected that mill. And I ran it so much over the years, I I knew that machine. And I could look at the weather going, I know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. And so I'd have to adjust how I'm going to approach that grain or that grind. And I have a few friends that also work in windmills. And yeah, so if the wind's not moving or it's moving at certain pace. You have to be a weather person to right. be a windmiller. And so I learned from a friend of mine who does that and some people in Europe I know that run them. And you're like, man, windmills as a water miller scare me because you can't stop the wind. So all sorts of things like that that these people had to, to go through, like like with a water mill. And, and the windmill people will kid you and say, well, you can turn it on or turn it off. I mean, my biggest problem is drought. What if there's no wind for days? All of a sudden, there's wind. It's the middle of the night. Guess what that yeah, you're running out. Get? you're running out to do that. I mean, yeah. you're, like,
0: you're right. You can have a drought, and you can not have the water source to move your mill, and I'm sure that's happened before, mm-hmm. but you're relying on the wind. That's a whole different story. But here's what it says. It's about experience, about education. It's about—you touched on it. It's hands-on. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you something, Steve. We've met a couple times. We've met at the American Whiskey Convention. We met at the Rose and Rye Distillation at um, Soul Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, for Dawn and I, this is part of our fermented adventure. Um, this has been a great. I'm grateful. This has been a great experience from from seeing and having from the mill to where we are today. The practical understanding. I feel so much, um, uh, you know, more educated now about distillation, and I hope that comes out when people listen to the podcast. But you know, if people haven't had anything of George Washington's Mountain Vernon Distillery, um, how do
1: they find it? How do they get it? It's available here at Mount Vernon at our shops. And if you happen to live in Virginia or DC, we can ship there now within the state and to DC. So you can order online, and it'll be shipped. Otherwise, you have to come to Virginia and there are gift shops here. We are also in some Virginia ABC stores in central Virginia, Charlottesville, Richmond area, Williamsburg. Um, but we are very small, so these bottles aren't distributed widely. Um, and the price point on them is high. So uh, Keep that in mind. They're handmade, and uh, also Virginia is a fairly high tax state for spirits. So keep in mind that we don't get all of that number. A lot of that goes to the no, 60 per, is a sixty percent. It's a little over fifty one percent. Okay. Think. Yeah. And but the other monies go right into help Mount Vernon continue to operate and educate and preserve this estate. So you know, all and particularly you know with COVID. You know, you can imagine not having t- any tourism as we know what's going on with bars, restaurants, and we are down quite a bit. So uh, the purchase of the whiskeys, you know, great gifts for Christmas, including the meal products, which you can get online and they can Yeah, the grits anywhere. and the pancake mix and all kinds of other things you said you make here. Grits, yellow and white grits, yellow and white meal, pancake flour, which makes good, um, very good uh, waffles as well. And so those are all available through mountvernon.org at the shops. And check that out there. Look, here's what I know. I mean, if you have
0: not put this distillery on your radar as far as if you're a spirit aficionado or just even curious about the, 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 how things are made, put this on your list. And you're here, and you're giving tours, and you you're you're living history, wearing your period piece. So people, will, I'll see you doing that. Um, I, I can't wait. Dawn and I think we'll be back when this gets all fired up, and I'd love yeah, to see I'd love this to work have you back and, when we're and everything fired else. up. Um, we appreciate you being a friend of the podcast and taking the time to sit down with us today. This has been. I, I was. I, I get more out of this. This is like I'll, I'll drive home now, and I'm going to geek out, and Don's going to be like, "Shut the hell up!" <laughs> but uh, this has been great, and I really appreciate your time today.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me, and also. Um, you know, I, I'll ramble down different avenues, so I hope everything we talked about was areas you wanted to Absolutely. Have explanation about. Absolutely. And uh, for those who want to visit, if, it, if things get better, the Mill and Distillery… When things get better. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. When they get better, the Mill and Distillery are, are open April 1st through October 31st for tours, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. So just look at MountVernon.org to find out about, as the spring rolls around, what we'll be doing. And uh, the estate itself, though, is open every day of the year. So if you want to tour Washington's house, uh, they close a couple weeks in late January just to do repairs to the house every year. Okay, When you think about it, uh, over the years since 1850-something or 1860s, about 90 million people have gone through that home. So it it needs care. And so they take good care of it, uh, working at night sometimes. But we also, when winter's here and it's slower... Preservation Department goes in there for a couple weeks and does a lot. That must of that.
0: be so much fun, just kind of going in places that the public doesn't see. And
1: oh, that's been one of the great things. Uh, yeah. i'll tell you real short. I, I don't want to ramble on, but uh, they redid the support system for the main staircase about maybe eight years ago. And think of all the people that went up that stairwell in Washington's day, right? But also over the years, and it had, it had needed some help in there. So the, the Millwright who built the gears and built this and another craftsman. They worked on that stair, and I got to go up under there and see all the original fabric. And these guys can read buildings, so Gus says, this board here, in some repair they did in 1930, it used to be originally here, so I put it back where I know it was in the 18th century. Really? Yeah, so he just not only was supporting it, but correcting things of other repairs. And there's a piece of iron in there that... I don't know what the Preservation Department final conclusion was, but may have been put in there by Washington when he enlarged the house. And so you can see this old, to, to support that staircase and tie into the front of the house. So I love looking at the guts of the building, and when they have work going on, you stick your head in there and say, hey, you know. And because I work here, I can stick. Yeah, you can do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what's going on. Steve, thanks so much again. Thanks for sharing your spirits. Thanks for sharing your history, your knowledge. And we just look forward to all the great things that are going to come out of Mount George Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery. More to come. More to come. Thank you, sir. Thank you.